Welcome back for another Soul Driven interview. Thank you for joining us again. So I am very excited to introduce you to this week's guest, Mrs. Judith Corvin Blackburn. She is an award-winning author, nationally known teacher, transpersonal psychotherapist, and shamanic minister who has been inspiring people to step into self-sovereignty, joy, and purpose for over 45 years. She is also co-founder of the Shamanic Multidimensional Mystery School. Underlining all her work is her passion and commitment to help transform our planet into the loving, peaceful, and creative place it is meant to be. Getting to speak with Judith was awesome. I am blessed to say that she's a family friend and someone that I've had the pleasure of getting to know better over the last few years, but she took the time to sit down with me and talk. And um, this interview is just fantastic. I mean, we, we could have talked for many more hours. So I really hope that you sit down with it, take it in as it's meant for you, and just really, man, we dive in on a wide array of subjects. We talk about uh, what transpersonal psychotherapy is, um, working with the inner child, soul contracts, uh, the difference between 3D and 5D, why healing our emotional wounds is so important. We talk all about higher frequencies and multidimensional theories. We talk about loving neutrality and the importance of anger and forgiveness. So quite a few things going on in this episode. I really hope that you enjoy it. So without further ado, I will see you on the other side. Enjoy. Welcome to the Soul Driven Podcast. I believe that when we invest in ourselves, the world benefits. If you are searching for meaning and purpose, if you are unsure about how to combine the spiritual with the everyday, if you are ready to uncover who you truly are, then you've come to the right place. The Soul Driven Podcast is dedicated to exploring the intersection of living a soulful and spiritual life in a driven and ambitious world. Join me for practical guidance, truthful discussions, and interviews with people who are successfully living a soul-driven life. My name is Anna Hendricks, and I'm your host. Thank you for being here. Welcome back, and thank you so much for joining us for another Soul Driven interview. These interviews are with people from all walks of life who have discovered their true purpose and are living it out every day. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to Judith Corvin Blackburn, transpersonal and holistic psychotherapist, teacher, shamanic minister, and author who recently released her third book, Activating Your 5D Frequency, a guidebook for the journey into higher dimensions. Welcome to the show, Judith. Thank you, Anna. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you. <laughs> I was scared to death that I was going to get your your last two names like mixed up. You did good. I'm so famous for doing that. So <laughs> I probably checked my notes at least 10 times and then brought in the book just to make sure. <laughs> All right. Yay. So we're good to go. <laughs> Um, awesome. So let's dive right in. Okay. Uh, the first question I ask all of my guests, what makes you soul driven? Well, um, it 
I suppose there, you know, you had told me you were going to ask that and I sort of had an idea of how I was going to answer it, but I'm not sure that's how I want to answer it. You know, the soul driven means we've quieted the ego and the ego is no longer in the driver's seat of our lives. And I've been in the process of doing that for oh, almost 50 years. Um, and I had a spiritual opening in my late 20s. And once that happened, I, I sort of joke about it, calling it my conversionary experience. But once that happened, my whole life shifted. And almost automatically or reflexively, the ego began to calm down. And more and more, I learned to observe myself, calm that ego, so that I could really tune into who I am at a soul level. And well, of course, that's a lifelong process. Um, it is definitely a driving force, if you will, in my life. It, it seems to me and, and kind of redirect me if I'm, if I'm going off on, on a tangent here, Anna, but um, it's, it's an alignment. It's like an energy alignment that you can feel inside when you really are in that soul place. Um, so I, I don't know if you need me to say more on that or not, but. Yeah, no, I I'll, love that. <laughs> I, I mean, I've asked this question quite a few times and of course I always get a different answer, but I haven't had anyone talk about the ego's involvement in that. Mm -hmm. And I really love that perspective because you're so right. It is 100% in alignment. Um, I think that like, I guess maybe from my perspective more so I was thinking of, you know, the ability of like connecting with your purpose and really sinking into what it is that your soul wants but I love the I love the insight of the ego because of course you can't do that when the ego is in the driver's seat, right? Exactly. And you know, there's there's what I would call soul contracts, which I believe are agreements that the soul makes before we come into each lifetime. Um, and that's where I see purpose more evolving from. Interesting. So then we're going to have to have, we're going to have to switch gears and go down that rabbit hole. Because <laughs> I, I have you might want to go there. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so what, what comes to me to say about that is, you know, I thought I was in my sole purpose when I started um, uh, being a therapist, when I got out of graduate school in, I was about 26 and I worked in a mental health center for a couple of years, and then I went out on my own, which is very unusual to be able to do that with um, only a few years at a clinic. But I got my license so I could do that. <clears throat> and, um, and if you had asked me, I don't know, those first 10 years that I was a therapist, I would have said, oh, this is my sole purpose. Now, Having said that, on the other hand, I had always imagined writing a book. So um, and I, when I was a child, I would write stories. And I was an English major in undergraduate school. And I really thought I'd just write the great American novel. Well, I hoped I would. Okay. <laughs> but I really saw this as uh, creative, my writing being creative. I never imagined I'd be writing books 
that are, you know, more in the self-help genre. But after I started being a therapist, probably, I'm trying to think time-wise, yeah, probably just about 10, maybe 15 years at the most into it, I really felt a drive to write a book. So then my sole purpose expanded, right? And I, that was when I wrote my first book, um, which was very much about the healing journey, the, the journey that I took clients through. <clears throat> and I, I described that book as a, um, a self-help book with a spiritual perspective, where my other two books are more spiritual books with a self-help, there's probably a better word, I can't think of it right now, perspective, more emotional, psychological perspective. So, so then I thought, okay, now I'm in my sole purpose. I started teaching workshops. Um, but every time I would be thinking, okay, I've, I've fulfilled these contracts, something else would begin to show up. And it was, and part of the contract that has taken me a really long time is to allow my work to get bigger and bigger out in the world. And I finally, in my mid seventies, feel like I'm ready for that. <laughs> so <laughs> first of all, it takes as long as it takes. <laughs> Let me say that to you. Um, but it wasn't until I wrote this book, got a publisher for it, and really stepped into that process that I felt like, okay, now I really have done everything I've agreed to do so far. I mean, you know, I probably still have another 20, 30 years, so who knows? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so we, um, so what you're saying is that purpose shifts, right? Perfect. Well, I think it expands. Now, okay. It's quite possible. Expands is probably a better word. Yeah. I mean, it's possible that um, it's there's some predetermination. Again, I think a lot of these contracts are made before we incarnate. And I also think with spirit, you know, if I didn't fulfill them, it's not like a bad thing. It just would mean I'd probably have to come back and do it another way. Because <laughs> I do think our soul makes agreements for certain life lessons and certain experiences. And also to share our gifts. And so if I have gifts that I hold myself back from sharing, yeah, I would have to find a way to do that ultimately to, to, to be in full alignment with my soul. So then the soul contracts expand and is this, is, this, is this part of your work, is helping people to come to understand what their soul contract is? Is that something um, that you do? Well, it's certainly the way I see the, the transpersonal psychotherapy that I do, even though a lot of what I do is helping people clear their emotional body, because as a culture, we are so backward about that. Right. So. I typically don't work with beginners. I typically work with people that have done a lot of work already on themselves. And so they may have more of the spiritual piece together. And I help them clear out the emotional issues so that they really can step into that soul purpose. Um, so I don't promote my work as, you know, do you want to find out your soul purpose? Come see me. But it's definitely, I mean, the whole idea of transpersonal is that you look at the soul of the person. 
Okay. And, and basically it's a process of clearing out everything in the way of that person simply expressing their soul. Got it. So is that the definition of, because I was definitely, I wanted to ask you and, and certainly to have you explain to us what transpersonal psychotherapy is. Yes. So it takes in the, the spiritual and soul aspect of a person where more traditional psychotherapy just looks at the, the mental and emotional issues. With okay. transpersonal, you, you hold the, the awareness of the whole person. And then I'll use tools like the astrological chart. Sometimes I use tarot or other kinds of oracle things. I use a lot of intuition. And that's something I've always done of just, you know, asking my own guidance, tuning into what a person needs. And the other thing that opened up for me after I did was a therapist again, probably for about 15 years, is I began to pick up on people's feelings. I could feel them kinesthetically in my own body. So I've also let that lead. So while that's not necessarily, well, it's transpersonal in the sense that it comes from an expanded broadband, if that makes sense to you. It's outside the traditional mode. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah, I love that. I love that a lot. Um, so kind of going back a little bit, you went to graduate school for psychotherapy. Where did the spiritual component come into play for you? Okay, so my degree is in... Um, clinical social work, my master's degree. Okay. I actually have a, a doctorate of ministry as well, which I got later on. Um, but that was through a very alternative university, Venus Rising University. Um, so where the, when the spiritual component came in very early on, I, ironically, it, when I graduated from graduate school and I got my master's, I probably would have still identified myself as an atheist because when I was about 12 or 13, I always loved to talk about ideas. And my father and I were talking and he told me he was an atheist and I didn't know what that meant. I was young. But when we talked about it, I thought, well, that makes sense. He just didn't believe in some guy in the sky kind of thing. So I went through my teen years and my early 20s assuming I was just an atheist, even though I was drawn to things like yoga, I was drawn to things we would call spiritual, but I wouldn't have identified with them. And when I was about this shortly after, it was right around actually when I started working on my own. So about two years after graduate school, I started reading a book called The Autobiography of a Yogi by Yogananda, who was one of the first Eastern gurus who came to the United States. And I would read a few pages of that book every morning and I would um, do my, my yoga every morning. And what began to happen is my psyche started opening up. And at one, one evening um, during a full moon, I had this amazing experience where everything opened up. I, I was on my knees weeping because I could feel the presence of a divine energy. And so I wasn't an atheist after that one. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, you know, it, it was just clear to me, there's something much bigger here. There is a divine force. Um, I read up on a lot of the 
you know, spiritual experiences throughout the ages that people had written. I tried to go to a midnight mass. I was raised Jewish, so I didn't have a Christian background. But when I was experiencing that weeping, I knew it was grace without even knowing the definition of it. So I remember going to midnight mass at a Catholic church. I was living in Chicago um, for uh, Christmas Eve, really hoping that I would feel the spirit, but it wasn't there. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, religion has never um, appealed to me. I joke that even paganism is too organized, but in terms of connecting, with that divine force it's the essence of who we are oh fully agree totally agreed so is this this was the uh was this the spiritual experience that you had in your 20s that really shifted things for you exactly yeah okay so then you came out of this and and where did that come into play oh, with your work right thank you <laughs> i like that you can direct me here you're good you're good <laughs> so as that happened and I think it was a process. I think I was kind of doing this prior to that experience with clients. But I did have this one client whose um, fiancé, I think, was a graduate was a, in graduate school at Yale Divinity. And she brought in some ideas that he was being exposed to. And they began to really click. You know, and I can't, this is a long time ago, so I can't give you the full uh, definition but I can say I began to broaden my idea of what it meant to be a person, basically. And my job and my role uh, in facilitating people really stepping into who they are. And I think I was familiar with the concept of being holistic as well. So holism means you deal with the whole person. You don't just deal with their neuroses. You deal with who they really are. So that all began to get incorporated in my work. And that. then what I didn't know, I didn't know the term transpersonal at the time. It wasn't until, let's say I was in Chicago, so it probably wasn't until about five years later that I found out there was actually an institute of transpersonal psychology on the West Coast. And, you know, I think with all these, we know there's a collective unconscious and people come to the same realizations um, without having to know each other. <laughs> Uh, right person, right so this was like happening around a lot of us were getting activated if you will about wait you know there's something a lot more important here than just helping people to feel a little better or to just deal with their childhoods but to deal with something larger interesting and so how did how did you like i mean we're um astrology and I know that uh you do like flower essences um how do these things make their way into your practice as well well I was actually interested in astrology before I probably defined myself as a holistic counselor um as soon as I heard about astrology maybe it was about 19 or 20 it, it was interesting to me and around the same time that I had that opening a little bit I think it was right around the same time. It might have been a little bit earlier. I just started reading astrology stuff and it got really interested in it. So, um, and I saw like one of the ways I learned astrology was to run my chart off. And in the old days, we didn't have computer programs. So we had to use these rather 
it was rather an involved process, but I would do, and if the, I don't even know if I did the full chart, that I can't remember when that came in, but I would look at my chart and my friends' charts and, and charts in my family, and I would begin to, to kind of trace significant moments from what might have been going on in the sky at that time. So to some degree, I learned astrology deductively, like I looked at, you know, I, I studied it, but I also saw, saw my journey through astrological lenses and other people that I knew well, their journeys as well. And it, well, Carl Jung, of course, is the, the psychologist that brought astrology into the whole psychotherapy process, actually psychiatrist. Um, and he's still been very influential. You know, he was a student of Freud's and he ended up breaking away from Freud because Freud couldn't step into the idea that we really were spiritual beings. And that was an important part of the psychotherapeutic process. And that was, uh, let's see, Jung was probably doing that in the 20s and 30s. Wow. Yeah, I've definitely heard quite a bit about him. Done a little bit of, of like reading about him, but not... Not too much, but I keep coming back and forth across his name. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so in regards to, I guess, like the, the connection of these two, that's where you kind of probably just organically stepped into being able to really help people um, connect with their soul contracts, if you will, or you know, their current purposes and, and clear away the emotional stuff in order to connect with that? Is that yes, correct? Yes, and I think that's a great way to say it on a, the organic piece of it, because it did. And, and that, of course, is we're on our soul's journey, even if we don't know it, because <laughs> everybody is. Um, we begin to find things that we're drawn to that, that weave together what we need. And so astrology was a piece of that. Got it. So I know you've been doing this for a while. Have you seen like, have you seen, you know, um, cons consistencies and, and rhythms to, to kind of how people stumble into these things? Or I know you just mentioned that, um, you know, it's, it's like the breadcrumbs, I think is kind of what you're referring to that, you know, like all of a sudden uh, this door opens up and then this door opens up and then before you know it, this is what you're doing. Right. Um, but yeah. have you seen any kind of pat like rhythms or anything like that? There's a better word. Well, I, I can't think know. of it. I love, I love the word rhythm, but I am trying to put it in context. Yeah. Um, what I have observed and actually I had run a, um, uh, this, it wasn't a therapy group. It was actually a supervision group for people that worked at um, the Illinois Department of Child and Family Services. And it, it was such an interesting group because these practitioners, it was random that they were assigned to me, but they were all opening spiritually. And I didn't know that. I wasn't trying to impose that on them. But when I asked them, how they got into the work they do, every single one of them had had a guiding experience, kind of like you're talking about. And, and I think that's true if I think about my clients as well. Things open up. And I do know, I, I'm also with clients, after they got to a certain point in their emotional development, I would run spiritual groups 
where there was a huge amount of growth. You know, people in those groups would be coming in and going, literally this book fell off my bookshelf because I was supposed to read it. So the more, and you know, the more we open to the idea that of synchronicity, which by the way, also Carl Jung talked about, uh, the more it happens. And it's not that, it, let me say it differently. It's not that it happens more, but the more we become aware that it's happening. So if those are the rhythms, you know, things open up for people as it's time. Usually there's some synchronicity of why people come to me in the first place, how they find me. Yeah, I've definitely seen um, kind of through the years just in working with different professionals, you know, that there's always a certain kind of person, you know, where they're at, the type of person where they're at, like in their life journey that are always drawn to you know, each individual person. Mm-hmm. Um, so in regards to kind of this opening that that we were talking about, um, like you were saying, these, uh, these folks all kind of came to your class and they were all starting to open up spiritually and how this is a part of your work kind of just naturally, organically now. Mm-hmm. Um, the emotional components that block us from that, can you kind of speak on that a little bit and help us understand a bit more about what you're talking about? Yes, it's um, it's almost impossible to be raised in our culture and not have emotional wounds. It, we are such a dysfunctional culture that it's very unusual. If you have a functional family, that is certainly not the norm, okay? Um, usually you have parents who've not been parented themselves in a way where they've experienced unconditional love. So they don't know how to give that really to their children. Um, and you also have a society that asks people to conform, not to, not to express who they really are, but to fall into, um, rather rigid roles that really don't fit most most people. I mean, we could even talk about the 40-hour work week. What? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Just as an example. So there's always some sort of emotional wounding because we don't have the permission, usually through our families and certainly through our culture, to be ourselves. So the... The process of healing is to little by little shift out of that conditioning and to heal those wounds. I work a lot with the inner child because uh, I think it works most quickly where you literally find different ages where you experience the wounding and you reparent that child. And of course, it's a lot easier to reparent an inner child than to raise a child. but it's very effective, okay? And one of the primary things, and this is true, when I worked with teenagers, I saw this as well. We can go through some really tough experiences, but those end, okay? We're being beaten, it was awful, but then we're not being beaten now. What really creates the wound is what happens to a a child, when they experience that, what they begin to believe, how they, how they have to repress their own feelings. And so allowing those things now to finally get expressed and released is where the real healing comes in. Because, as, because what happens is when we're 
when we're mistreated or, and it can be mild, it still has wounding, just not being seen for who we really are or allowed to be who we really are. Um, that shifts the child's view of themselves. I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable enough. I'm not worthy. There's something wrong with me. Those are universally uh, programmed beliefs from childhood wounds. And that's what really needs to get shifted. Because once those are shifted, then we're free to, when we stop caring about what other people think, and we really shift into, okay, what's really right for me? And that's when the soul begins to step forward. Um, my second book, Empowering the Spirit, is very much focused on that. Interesting. So child wounding, is there like a specific age that this happens in between? Um, I go through several different, different ages, in, and I'll tell you a little bit about this. Again, my first book, I delineate this pretty clearly. I also want to say that because I absolutely believe the soul comes through in different bodies, that the wounding that we experience in this life often is from a pattern from other lifetimes. And I believe we choose our parents, and that doesn't mean a child chooses to come into an abusive family. I mean, they, they hope it's not going to work out that way. But the wounding typically fits, and that's where the astrological chart's important, and although that's not my expertise with astrology, but it typically fits the soul patterns that somebody came in with that need to get cleared and healed. Interesting. So you're, go ahead. Oh, well, then I was going to get to your specific question about ages. There's actually an astrological Saturn square that occurs for people around age seven. So it's not that wounding couldn't occur before then, because it does. But age seven is typically critical for people. And something often shifts that's very challenging at that point. So... When I work with the inner child, I work with really three stages. I work from five to around 11. But again, seven is often an age that comes up in that. And then I work with the little teenager because then there's another kind of experience and wounding um, of how am I going to be? I know I'm not a young child anymore and I'm not really an adult. And you know, if I'm heterosexual and I'm female, are guys going to like me and vice versa? And then it's much more it's much more difficult for homosexual teens. It's getting a lot better, but where you can't even begin to um, experiment with, you know, can I, if I, you're a young boy, can I find another boy that really likes me, that I want to date, that kind of thing. And then the older teen who's a lot more self-sufficient, but goes through other kinds of challenges. So, um, those are typically the three stages that if you want to clear it all, <laughs> that's a lifetime thing <laughs> that yeah. I people look at. I, I always joke. I'm like, so probably the earliest I would go back is 25. <laughs> I have no interest in anything before. Just forget it. <laughs> well, one thing that's important, when we look at early trauma, we don't want to relive the trauma. That's one of the reasons that I really like working with the inner child is I help people take the child outside of them and comfort the child without having to go through the feelings of the trauma themselves. There are also, for severe trauma, 
there's a huge number of new modalities that I don't do, but I really encourage people to do where the trauma can get neutralized somewhat so that you can go through the healing process. It also helps you not go back to all the pain because we don't want to get stuck in pain, obviously. This is like EMDR and... Right. That's right. EFT does some of that. I just heard of um, something called um, TIR, Trauma Incidence Reduction. Mm. And there's um, SE. There's a bunch of things now. <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's definitely uh, one of the girls that I follow on Instagram just like shared a inner child meditation. It's definitely become very... You know, I think most people are understanding what inner child work is now, or at least have mm -hmm. a grasp of it. Um, so I know, I think it's like to age seven that we're in the theta growing oh, with our brain. Okay. And so I know that like up until that point that it's very, like nothing's concrete. So do you think that maybe seven is kind of a big number then? Because all of a sudden things kind of become concrete, like the, the things that we've learned. That's really interesting, Anna. And I think what you're talking about is Piaget's theories, which never quite clicked, but you're explaining it really well. <laughs> <laughs> the um, And yes, that would make sense because a child around seven also seems, you know, they appear to have the ability to reason in a way that they really don't before then. They may talk reasonably, but they they can't make those connections like you're talking about. Um, so that they think they're figuring it out, but they're only seven. Yeah, so young. Right. So, so young. Um, so why do you think it is that 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 child work is so tough on us? Um, or I guess I should say child, you know, the, the wounding, like why it's, it carries with us for so long. Cause I know, like you mentioned, um, that it doesn't even have to be severe. And in my own work with therapy, I mean, it's, it's as something as simple as like a parent brushing you off a couple of times. Right. And I just think like poor parents, because, <laughs> you know, we all have a bad day. Like, I mean, you know, perfection as a parent's like, impossible right but, but why is it that 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 can happen I guess so easily and then affect us for so long um well again I think it probably is a, a soul contract connection We're, if we lived in a healthy society I don't believe that those wounds would be there then if your parent blew you off, you'd go to your, you know, neighbor in the next hut and put their arms around you and say, oh, your mom's having a bad day. Um, we, we don't live in that kind of culture. We live in cultures where adults are overwhelmed. And even back, um, you know, 50, 60 years ago, while it wasn't as intense with stress, also, adults were made to fit into these very unnatural roles. So again, this whole, we're dealing with dysfunction everywhere. And there's nothing to support. The society doesn't know how to support the child's self-esteem. So then if a parent's having a bad day and you're getting brushed off, it gets internalized differently than if you had come into a healthy place. 
Does that make sense to you? Yeah, for sure. Um, have you ever uh, heard about or read the books, Conversations with God? Um, yes, I read the first two. Okay. Years ago, though. <laughs> so in the third one, um, I, I, I read this earlier this year. Um, God was talking about how dysfunctional our society is and just kind of the setup of it and how the problem is that babies are raising babies, you know, mm -hmm. like parenting is actually supposed to be for the elders that yes, younger folks, their bodies are more adept for having a baby, but that in healthy societies and, and that there are still like, you know, a couple of indigenous societies like this on the planet still, um, the younger people are having babies and then they give them to their parents, you know, who elders who are like 50 plus, um, mm -hmm. and the, you know, the, um, the, the mother parents, you know, they can still live of course in the same home, however, however it works, you know, for them, but that the, the whole pressure of raising a child isn't put on another child, which I just, you know, my mother had me when she was 22. And when I got to 22, I was like, are you kidding me? Right. <laughs> and How that was do this. And 22 wasn't considered that young. No, no, so, not at all. Uh, the other piece is that because of the dysfunction in our society, so many people remain emotionally immature. So you could be born to someone in their 30s, but they still may be functioning like they're 18. Right. So... Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, when I read that, I, I thought, wow. Um, because I know for myself, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 38. I had to think about that for a second. <laughs> I'm 38. And, you know, if I think if I probably have a child, it would be in my early 40s. And um, I, I, I definitely wouldn't have been a, the mother that I would want to be beforehand you know, and even I think early forties could still be young too. Like, I don't know that I'll be through mm -hmm. my, my crap by then. Um, <laughs> but you know what I mean? I think, Oh, wow. absolutely. <laughs> and I had my first child at 33 and my third child at 40. Okay. And there's still so much growth between 40 and 50 and 60, you know, but I was, if I had had kids in my twenties, it would have been horrible. I would have been a much less good mother so yeah. um and i you know i love the idea though when, when you talk about these indigenous cultures and how things are still set up functionally and if there are still a few on the planet um when we get into talking about my newest book part of what i envision in these 5d in a 5d or new earth world is you know, we sort of reclaim the energy of the village where everybody participates in raising children. And I think that kids would be so much healthier, never mind parents happier. Yes, absolutely. I, and that was part of, you know, what I enjoyed reading about um, in that book specifically, because I was just thinking, you know, he was saying, it's like, if the parents want to be around the child all the time or live with the child, that's fine. If they want to go off and have their own life, you know, for however many years, that's okay too. And I just thought, wow, that's, that, that's such a freeing idea, you know, and, and then 
kids aren't put into these pressurized situations, you know, where it's like they just arrive and so the parents just have to survive. And, and of course, like they all just barely make it out of there. Um, mm-hmm. It would just be so much more well-rounded all, all the way, you know? Um, and I would think anyway that like, especially if I was 50 plus, that, that actually like I, I might have more fun with the child, you know? Well, that's why it's fun being a grandparent, but you don't have, you know, in our culture, you can be a grandparent without the responsibility. Yeah. You know, so, so it's kind of tricky because if you put in, you know, 20, 25 years raising children, then <laughs> when you get older, you also want to have that time to do what you want to do. But okay. I, I think it's really about having a loving, healthy culture where everyone is supported. Because parents that are feeling unsupported, which are most parents, are it's very hard for them to fully support their children. Right. Yeah, we can't pour from an empty cup. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that uh, you mentioned in your book is a good transition to just diving in. Um, I've got quite a few questions, but we'll just kind of see where this goes. So just kind of uh, to reiterate for folks... Um, Judith's book is called Activating Your 5D Frequency, a guidebook for the journey into higher dimensions. And of course, I'll be putting all of the links to all of her books and her websites and social channels in the show notes. Um, So first, Judith, I'd love to just kind of get a little bit of background on why, why this book and why now, you know? Um, okay. Well, it was kind of a magical process for me. Um, I hadn't planned to write another book, although, you know, I sort of knew maybe it was going to come. Um, I started to get really interested in multidimensionality, um, probably about 10, 12 years ago, but in the sense that, but it probably was much longer. I maybe didn't have quite the same language, although I did write, I write about it some in my second book. Um, So I guess I was open to it beforehand, but about 10 years ago, I came upon Barbara Hand Clough's book, Alchemy of Nine Dimensions. And that explained a nine dimensional axis that as humans on this planet, we have access to. And that opened up huge things for me. Prior to that, I had gone to Egypt on a shamanic journey in 2005. And it was a wonderful trip. It was led by Nikki Scully, who's now not leading them anymore, although she's trained others. And uh, Linda Starwolf, who's my next door neighbor, and her husband, Brad, were um, some of the co-leaders on this trip. And what we would do, we could, Nikki had been leading people there for years and she knew all of the ropes. So she was able to get us places that other people either couldn't do or we could get there before things officially opened up. So we were actually able to stand right at the Sphinx. Usually you have to stand back. We were able to go into the Great Pyramid um, by ourselves. There were no other tourists there. We were able to get up early in the morning, a lot of times four or five in the morning, we would go to the very ancient temples. And we also had this wonderful Egyptologist who said, first off, because we started in Giza where the pyramids are and we ended in Giza, 
<clears throat> and he said, this was not built by slave labor. This was built by anti-gravitational rods. And so and I was really, you know, already quite spiritually open. But as soon as he said that, I'm like, yeah, these are much, much older than history claims. And as we traveled through the country to these ancient temp temples, which are still amazing, they've been desecrated a lot. Uh, when the Christians came in, they were, you know, didn't like the goddesses. So they, they, um, they took, they wiped the stones or they damaged the stones so you couldn't see much, but they're still magnificent, amazing structures. It's like, how did they create these? And just as an example of this anti-gravitational rods, when we were in a museum or a temple, um, uh, I don't know, probably 300 miles away from Giza, there was actually a hieroglyph, which was very ancient, of two men standing across from each other holding these anti-gravitational rods. And throughout that whole experience, you know, so it was like things were opening up like, hmm, what was going on here? And what I began to notice is that the very, very ancient Egyptians, way pre-Pharaohs, were much more evolved. And that began my awareness that we were different at one point in time. We were much more evolved species, ancient Egypt, Atlantis, Lemuria. As I saw what happened through the, the newer temples, even the language shifted so that the hieroglyphs, this is very interesting because it's um, uh, counterintuitive to the way we tend to think. We think if somebody has a very complex language, it means they're more developed. But actually, some of the most developed cultures didn't need complex language because they were able to use a symbol or a word and transmit a frequency of many concepts. And that's what went on with the hieroglyphs. The very simple hieroglyphs were more ancient and actually were transmitting much higher consciousness information than the more um, complex hieroglyphs. And I was just reading, I'm endorsing a book on Peru, The Shamanic Mysteries of Peru, um, where the, the shamans living high in the Andes, the Queros people, they, they knew this. Their language did not, they, what we might take 20 words to describe, they only take one because it transmits to each other these higher frequencies. So when I began to see that there was an evolutionary descent going on, and then I came across this uh, very elegant multidimensional theory, what, what came to me is that we had gone from being fifth dimensional humans at one time to third dimensional humans where we got stuck. Um, and it's complex when people ask about 4D, <laughs> but I explain that in the book. Um, so, the, um, which reminds me of a question you asked that I didn't answer. We'll try to get back to that about um, why if, we, if we've been traumatized, for instance, 30 years ago, we still feel it. So we might want to get back to that, Anna, but I don't want to get too far away from this. Um, so in noticing that and loving Barbara Hanclough's book, I started teaching some workshops on multidimensionality. 
at the time, I didn't have the fifth dimensional awareness quite so clearly as I do now, because now I believe we are in the opposite. We are in an ascension process. Obviously, I'm not the only one that talks about this, going from 3D to 5D. So we're reclaiming who we once were. It's encoded in our DNA. And uh, it's getting reactivated. And we can do it consciously or unconsciously, but the more conscious, the better, is my opinion. Um, so, um, so I started teaching this, and then I stopped, and I thought, do we need another theory? We have so many theories and systems. And then I got pulled back to it, and I got pulled back to it because I was in a mystery school that Star Wolf was running. Um, this was probably about four or five years ago. And I don't even know why I did it, except it was here. It was in my community. A friend of mine was coming in from Illinois and said she wanted to do it and she wanted to stay with me. And I'm like, okay, well, that would be in my office. So I might as well just do this mystery school. And the, the hearing the word mystery school, just like, oh, yeah, this sounds wonderful. And even though it's, it was taught differently, as soon as, within the first 20 minutes, I realized I was there because I was supposed to teach a multidimensional one. Um, so uh, that opened up another level for me. And what I realized in the multidimensional mystery school is it was about becoming or reclaiming ourselves as 5D humans. So that, that I was teaching that. I started the, the mystery school with my friend. We're still doing it. And actually, that's one of our upcoming pieces. Now we're going to do it online. Um, but still, I didn't think I was going to write a book on it. And so about nine months after that experience with the first mystery school, I was at Stowe Island, which you're probably familiar with. Uh, Dennis and I go there or had gone there every year and done a week or two retreat. And I was about two days into the retreat and, you know, just enjoying being at the beach and right at the ocean and relaxing. And all of a sudden, this book just basically, <laughs> you know, tapped me loudly on the shoulder and said, okay, it's time. And so I would, mostly I was not on electronics at the beach, but late afternoon, I would go to my computer and journal and then I started writing this book. And by the time I, and I wrote every day, <clears throat> I was actually there three weeks because some friends of ours came down for a third week. And uh, I wrote every day and the first chapter was finished by the time I got back home. And then it just kept rolling. So uh, this book just came through. And what I didn't know, because, so the book came through, this was like, I started writing it, I think in the fall of, 2016 might have been 2015 I've lost that no 2016 in early 2017 I had gotten some intuitive information this book needed to go forward my my friend Star Wolf had some good connections at Inner Traditions Publishing and I said hey I'm writing this will you take a look at it if you like it she likes to help people uh, whose work she thinks is good get their books published. So she read it, she goes, this is great. She called up the acquisitions editor and he said, well, somehow people are writing on 5D now. 
And so she called me and, and Star Wolf likes to do things real quick. She goes, Judith, you got to put it together, get this together in a, a week. Um, and uh, before he forgets that I called him, blah, blah, blah. So I did. I put together a proposal and I, uh, and the other thing I had to do was um, write a, um, a table of contents or an outline, right? Well, I had only written four chapters. I had no idea what was going to write next. But in that week, it all came downloaded, <laughs> and which was amazing because actually that that outline that showed up was exactly what I followed the whole time, the whole rest of the time, writing the book. However, I didn't get the contract at that point. So that sent me back to the drawing board. And I had to sit with it. I kept writing. I thought this book needs to get out. And I finally decided I was going to resubmit. So in September of 2017, I resubmitted. And Inner Traditions at the time was saying, if you don't hear from us in two months, we're probably not taking your book. So two months went by and I thought, oh, they're not taking it. I started looking at other options. And three months after I submitted it, I got the email. Um, I'm sorry it's taken so long, but we want to publish your book. I, at that point, I went into a state of shock because I was so sure they weren't taking it. So that was 2018 at the end, right? It takes about, uh, the final version was due in April 2019, and the release date was May 2020. Well, look what happened in March 2020. <laughs> Everything shifted in the world, right? And people are going, what's going on here? And it's opening them. I mean, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of things that aren't positive. Uh, <laughs> we don't know what's real and what isn't anymore, but it's also opening people up so that when this book actually came out, there was a much larger opening than there would have been in 2018. I have a quote that is on my phone screen that I made for myself. I guess I've had it for two years now, year and a half. It's called Everything Happens for Our Benefit. Oh, yes. And I just think that that's, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, it, the book was clearly a divine, divinely given to you. And of course, it comes out at the perfectly divine time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that's what the soul-driven life is, right? Is really yeah. understanding. We think we can be in charge of these things. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah. Yeah, that can my absolutely happen when they're supposed to. Go always, ahead. always. Um, yeah, that was always a <laughs> that was always something my younger self struggled with so hard. It was like, all right, God, I'll do this much, but then like you're supposed to do this much, or like, oh wait a minute, because my propensity is just to take over. Um, so <laughs> we have to also leave room for the magic. Um, so I think before kind of we dive into the book a little bit. Um, what I'd love for you to do is just give like a, you know, like a short definition, just kind of explaining the difference between 3D and 5D so that folks kind of understand on the front end um, and are with us moving forward. Uh, yes, that's really important. Anna. In some ways, 3D is really ego driven. Um, we're always dealing with um, a sense of polarity, and you can see that really dramatically right now in the world. 
When we move into 5D, it's really a heart opening. The characteristics of the fifth dimensional person is unconditional love. Now that doesn't just mean I love you unconditionally. It means I have to love myself unconditionally. Um, unity consciousness, which means understanding we are all connected. We are all interconnected. We're all part of this, you know, large, beautiful hologram of creation. We're also interconnected with the earth. We're connected with animals, with trees. Um, we're connected with all of creation. But even just understanding our interconnections with each other. And again, quantum physics has really stepped up to be able to show this. Then we understand if, if I don't love myself, I can't fully love you. But if I can fully love myself, then not, not only can I love you, but I know if I do harm to you, I'm harming myself. If I harm myself, I'm harming you. So when we get into that fifth dimensional consciousness or that frequency, and, and I, I will speak into that in a moment, it, it becomes impossible to harm another. It, there's just no motive to it. Um, and then the, we have to, in order to get there, of course, we have to step out of judgment. And in that process, we step into new levels of creativity. I, I like to use the term unbridled creativity to express what it's like when we're in that fifth dimensional frequency. Um, because nothing is, is impossible. All our channels are open, basically. The portals are open. And... You know, you look at things like what the damage that humans have done to 3D humans have done to the earth because we've been in such misalignment. I really don't believe we can be in a 3D frequency and be in alignment. Okay, it is our natural state to be in a fifth dimensional frequency in a human body on the planet. So, um, and that the frequency, when you know, we're all experiencing this to some degree, if we're, if we're a little bit open even. Some people are, are really in resistance and fear, and that's okay, and they're not feeling this. Um, some people are just really attached to the whole ego thing, and that's their choice. But uh, for those of us who are opening, we're going to feel times where we can feel ourselves lightening up and filled, filled with more light, spacious, heart opening right? Which is one reason it's so important to clear the emotional wounds, because one thing that happens when we're wounded is we tend to close down the heart, or we're kind to others, but not to ourselves, unkind to others, all of, all of the above. So the, to be able to really open to this frequency really involves healing the heart, which involves clearing the emotional body. Um, but one of the things I always start my workshops or my teachings off with helping people go into a very quick meditation where they actually feel their cells speeding up and notice how it, it, the experience of it internally, because once we can feel into it, then we begin to expand how often we're there. Does that make sense to you? It does. It does. And, um, I guess you know, understanding the 3D and the 5D, um, at least for me, like the, the frequency changes is so much about, obviously I think, you know, there's these traits. And of course this is just my perception of it. There are these traits, you know, like um, if I'm existing in 3D, I'm, I'm more judgmental. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, we, you know, I, I maybe can get triggered way faster and my ego is really in the driver's seat um, versus 5D where, you know, like if someone cuts me off in traffic, I'm like, man, maybe they've got somewhere really important to go, you know, instead of getting angry. Or um, if someone hurts me, I'm like, are you okay? You know, instead of getting angry. Um, but I think that this all comes back to like feeling, right? An emotion and yeah. and like a like a, a leveling of emotion. Is that is that kind of correct? A, I yes. shouldn't say leveling, like a neutralizing of sorts. I call it loving neutrality. Perfect. All right. Yeah. And that doesn't mean we don't feel. And and we're still going to be human that, you know, something will still irritate us or something will really touch us, of course, or uh, make us sad or scared. But it's knowing how to maneuver through those feelings. So we, we just move with the, we just move the energy in a, a loving way, a non-resistant way, which, and it, it puts us into love, what, obviously the big picture, right? And it puts us into this loving state of neutrality. When we're really activated, when we have activated that fifth dimensional frequency, we are in a state of loving neutrality. Now, we're human, so we can't do that all the time. <laughs> and we're very much in the process of becoming. We are not there. Part of what I talk about a lot in the book is how to um, recognize our shadows and integrate them so that in a loving way, so that we don't have parts of ourselves that are disconnected and therefore get projected on other people. Um, if I don't think it's okay to be angry, then I'm not going to be able to release old anger that I might have from being mistreated. And I will either attract people that will keep mistreating me, or I will think it's okay to, to like project onto a particular group that I have been told aren't good. And I mean, obviously that creates a horrible, uh, horrible planet. So as we step into that, you know, as we move on our own shadow, we stop projecting it onto other people. But we also step into a greater place of, of self-love because self-love isn't just loving ourselves when we're good, right? It's loving all of us. Yeah. It's, it's you know, when you raise a child, you don't want to tell the child they're bad. You might ask them to change behavior that's not good. We have to do the same thing for ourselves. Yeah, I had a really interesting experience. Um, I think it was about probably two months or so ago. I'm like not a morning person, (laughs) (laughs) even though I like to wake up early. Um, But I I can wake up really slow and I have very intense dreams. So especially if I dream something, you know, it takes me a while to kind of wake up and disconnect. Um, but I had woken up this morning, like a, a morning, it was on the weekend and, um, uh, you know, my partner and I had things planned for the day that were supposed to be fun. And I was raging <laughs> when I woke up, I mean like raging and I was laying in bed and I was just like, so upset with the fact that I was upset, you know, and, and just like, <laughs> yes. it's, it's that loop. That, you know, like torturous loop. Um, and it was just like, gosh, Anna, like, you know, like, why can't you just 
chill. Like, why can't you be a morning person? Why can't you whatever? And for whatever reason, um, and it was so crazy because I was thinking like, oh, I wish Carlos would come in and like give me a hug or something. And I was laying there and I was, you know, berating myself really. And all Mm -hmm. of a sudden I started saying like, okay, Anna, it's all right that you're so angry right now. I accept that you're angry. It's okay that you're angry. And it was crazy how fast it changed. Um, And then Carlos walked in the room like I had called him or something. (laughs) It was just like, holy crap. Um, But when I, you know, when I read your book and thought about like this 5D and of course, like you're saying, we're, we're human. So, and we're very much in the process of like, we've only started, started, you know, um, some more than others have got it, but (laughs) I'm definitely at the very beginning. Um, but I think that like, that is more so the type of 5D, like that sort of ascension. Is that, is that correct? Absolutely. And you, you did it. What you did was perfect because, the, the anger <clears throat> in and of itself, it's just energy. Yeah. If it's not doing harm to yourself or others, it's fine. It's just energy. Um, but it, once we judge it, then we block that energy from being able to release. Yeah. And then we put ourselves in pain. It's the same thing with sadness, you know, um, the older poets from you know 200 years ago they would talk about um sweet the bittersweet sadness something like that they would use the term sweet when we can just allow ourselves to grieve freely without judgment it doesn't feel bad it doesn't matter what the feeling is now fear is a little trickier but um again every time we judge ourselves we make it we contract our energy and, it, and we bring our frequency down. So what you did was just sort of spontaneously went, it's okay. You, you put that love energy out to yourself. Really, right? And it then, was my higher self. I don't know how I knew to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> but I was thankful well, for it nonetheless. <laughs> and your higher self is part of you. Yeah. It is part of our multidimensional being. Okay, so, and it's okay to own that. Um, because we want to operate more and more from there. Yeah. Um, so in regards to your book, something I've definitely wanted to chat with you about, um, you've kind of mentioned that like, um, the biblical story is the story of our dimensional descent. I'd love for you to just kind of explain that a little bit. I, yeah, I love to talk about this. Great question. Uh, I was actually teaching a workshop on multidimensionality when, and and I was teaching it again before I focused on 5D. I was teaching that, you know, we have these nine dimensions we can access. And in the middle of teaching it, it dawned on me the biblical story of the fall was actually a story of the dimensional descent. And except they blamed Eve. <laughs> you know, typical. Um, <laughs> Well, because it was the beginning of the patriarchy, yeah, which had to uh, push away the divine feminine. 
but separate from the Eve part that probably got thrown in later <laughs> because you know the story probably evolved perhaps even over many thousands of years before it showed up in the Bible. Um, but the idea of the Garden of Eden to me is a very fifth dimensional uh, planet, a spiritually awakened planet where we are all uh, living in harmony, we're loving to each other, and we're using our creativity not to figure out how to outdo somebody else, but to figure out how to enhance life for everybody and for all, all things on the planet. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Now that you're talking about it, um, again, in in that book, um, Conversations with God, because he talked about how way back when, and I, I think maybe you and I have chatted about this briefly, about how women ruled the planet um, mm-hmm. primarily and... Uh, and, and how women were in charge and, and men handled like physical labor. And of course, um, uh, we're, we're needed to make babies and all of those things. Um, but that the whole, the whole shift was, was when men decided that, uh, you know, that they wanted to be in charge and that's where fear was brought into. And then that's where, um, these were things that weren't really known beforehand and women gave up their throat chakra. They gave up that right to speak in mm-hmm. order for men to be able to take on the, the role of, of provider. Um, that just was like coming to me when you were talking about, you know, that descent, because that would make perfect sense. Yes, I think though that prior to the matriarchal, there, you know, one of the things in the Egyptian Netaru, their pantheon, um, balance was yeah. considered really important. The sacred, when we're really in balance, we have the balance between the sacred masculine and the sacred feminine. Yeah, and and in five D cultures, okay, and I've heard stories about Atlantis too. Atlantis went through a lot of. Um, you know, high peaks, and then some stuff would come in and mess it up. But when you get to that, our, the, our ability to live at the highest frequency in human bodies, there's a balance. It's the yin yang, the balance between the masculine and the feminine. So, you know, there, there are a lot of different stories, and it may be that we went from balance to more matriarchal to then patriarchal, trying to perhaps test out experience. You know, like what would happen if? Yeah. <laughs> when uh, at the very beginning of my writing this book, this sort of, it's not a poem really, but this, this piece came to me. And I said, you know, we had no idea what, what we would be unleashing essentially by going through this dimensional descent, how, how cruel we could be to each other. That was not in our awareness. Yeah. Until we went into the separation and threw ourselves so out of balance and then found out it's not pretty. <laughs> no, it is not. Yeah, I've, I've always, I mean, I've worked with, um, I've worked with a lot of men in my life and I've worked with a lot of women in my life. And I've always found that that, that perfect balance is, you know, not even necessarily gender-wise, male, female, but the masculine, feminine, the, the yin, the yang, the you know, um, like it's just, it's so needed and necessary. 
Um, mm. As much as I love women, I I don't think that all women should be running the planet either. <laughs> you know, I think I think there definitely needs to be a balance. Um, right. and, and it is an internal balance. Yeah. Okay. Um, there's a woman called Anna De- Anania Judith. Do you know of her? Anadia Judith. She wrote a lot on the chakras. <clears throat> One thing she wrote about that was so beautiful to me was that when the sacred feminine got thrown out, we all became children of the sort of devastating divorce. And so you couldn't be healthy. You only had one part. It's like, and if you tried to pull in the feminine, that was bad, right? They burned witches and who were really healers. So, um, so we've all, all culture that has been based on the patriarchy had to suffer. Yeah. Wow. That makes sense. I'll have to check her out, look that up. Um, so the 5D that we're going to, one of the other things that you mentioned as well um, is that if 60% of people believe like in this piece, then we can, then we can, it can be our reality here on earth. Can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit? Yes. <clears throat> and to give you a really good answer, I would have to take a lot more time, but I, but I can give you a good enough answer. I think that at least if it piques people's curiosity, they can look more. One of the reasons I love this nine-dimensional axis is that it, it explains sort of how we create physical manifestation. And the sixth dimension, see what I really think is we're going from being 3D slash 4D humans 4D is an emotional dimension, it's not physical, to becoming 5D slash 6D humans. The sixth dimension is where, it, it was Plato called it the world of forms. It's where all qualities, all things that have manifested in physical, what we call physical form on in 3D, have an inception in sixth in the sixth dimension so if and and it's not just physical objects i mean we all have a ka body the egyptians talked about the ka ka it's like our a part of us that is in the sixth dimension it's like the the energetic the perfect energetic blueprint of who we are any the horse, oh, you think about a horse, there is an energetic blueprint of the horse in the sixth dimension. You think about love, there's an energetic blueprint of love. If you think about peace, if you think about harm, if you think about hatred, those all, all exist in the sixth dimension. What manifests in 3D is what we, um, uh, uh, not the word activate, but it's what we focus on. So I think the example I give in the book is if a large percentage of people, which probably in the 1940s believed that war is inevitable, we are going to have war. With the 60s, in the 1960s, the whole hippie movement and peace movement began to put other qualities in 6D and say, wait a minute, peace is possible. So now we're in those polarities, war is inevitable, peace is possible. When enough people can fully believe and experience the idea of planetary peace, 
it actually reconfigures in the sixth dimension and it will manifest on the planet. Interesting. So if we want to have a loving planet, we have to keep visualizing. What does that look like? How, how we're going to relate to each other. Um, again, how we're going to relate to the earth. We, we wouldn't want to keep putting chemicals, <laughs> you know, and poison it because we poison the earth or putting chemicals in our body because that poisons our organic substance here. So do you, do you feel like you exist in 5D? Sometimes, <laughs> not consistently. And that's one of the things I really stress in the book, because to me, I wrote the book as kind of a navigational tool to understand we're, I'm not in 5D all the time. I would say probably 85%. It, I mean, I feel good and, and my, my cells are moving pretty quickly and my heart's open. Um, sometimes a lot more than that, but you know, I can get cranky and I'm not in 5D if I get cranky <laughs> or, or I can get stuck in something and, and, you know, just like you experienced with that anger that came up for you. If I judge it, I will keep myself in 3D much longer. Yeah. If, if I can open in a loving way which, you know, generally speaking, it doesn't take me very long, then I can put myself back in a higher frequency or allow myself to go because it is our natural state. So what's some of the practices that you utilize in your life? I know that this has, you know, obviously been a, a journey and an evolution. I think something we're always on, but are there certain practices that you have? Uh, well, yes, definitely. I guess I want to say five things at once. So let me first say healing our emotional wounds is really important. And it's not that they have to be 100% healed, but they have to be healed enough that we're able, if they pop back up, to know what to do about them. So I did a lot of healing before I came across uh, inner child work. But if some old wounding comes up for me, I will work with an internal inner child. What I do on a daily basis <clears throat> You know, gratitude. I mean, more and more people are stepping into that. Um, and, and when we really feel that gratitude, what that does is it opens our heart. So, you know, I wake up and I, I'm grateful for a good night's sleep. And I, if I, I sit for food and I'm grateful for my food and I'm grateful for the beautiful place I live. All of that begins to um, raise my frequency. Uh, breathing, of course. Yogic breathing is really important. If, I, if I'm feeling out of sorts or um, uh, in any form, just doing deep centering breath. Um, I walk daily I, and I pray daily, many times a day, actually. Um, I, I pray mostly for others. But if I'm in a dilemma, of course, I'll ask for divine help. When you understand oneness, you sort of understand you're asking divine parts of the self, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> I still ask for that help, just like your higher self came in, even though, yes, it's also you. Um, I journal daily, and in journaling, it helps me become aware where I may be stuck ego-wise. I pay a lot of attention to how I feel. 
Uh, and again, one of the things I, I teach, like I, I taught a little phone class on judgment and I may, I may start doing that again, but you know, when we're in judgment, our body begins to contract, our hearts kind of contract and we feel uh, tight. So I observe if, if tightness comes around my body to notice that, to ideally be gentle with myself, give myself credit for noticing, that's important. That's what you did really when you went, wait, it's okay, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and, um, and then, you know, sort of breathe through or do whatever it takes for what's uh, the judgment. So if the judgment is about myself, I might have to work with an inner child probably just breathing it through and noticing will take care of it at, at this point for me. If I'm judging somebody else, I love Ho'oponopono. Are you familiar with that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that's a lovely tool because what that really does is it creates an energetic neutrality. Okay. When we go, I love you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. It's not even so much the words. It's the frequency that those phrases hold that begins to open the heart back up and put us in that loving neutrality. Yeah, there's some really good um, videos on YouTube for that mm. that folks can, you know, utilize to walk through. Um, there's a, a shamanic, um, a shamanic um, teacher, I guess, if you will, as well. She's actually in Asheville and she, she does this whole sort of like forgiveness cord cutting thing that's just, it's really beautiful as well. That just really opens up. It, it reminded me of that when I, when I did it, because it was a lot of, you know, just, just saying the words again and again. And, you know, a lot of that reiteration. Um, yeah, that's a beautiful practice, I think, for sure. Yeah. Now, I, I do have a bit of a rant on forgiveness, <laughs> if you want me to give it. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm a psychotherapist, my concern is that people are pushed into forgiving before they're ready. And forgiveness, of course, it's a wonderful thing, but not as a Band-Aid. Now, it may be that if you do, like if, if I was wounded, if I was violated by someone, which is a little different than being irritated by someone, I really believe that to fully forgive, I have got to access my anger and release that anger in a healthy way, not on that person, but just find a way, whether through angry letters or pounding pillows or whatever, that the angry energy needs to be honored. And part of that honoring means it needs to be identified, expressed, and ultimately released. And that isn't a one-time deal. If you've been badly violated, whether it's physically or sexually or emotionally or even spiritually, that takes a little time. So if somebody were deeply wounded through with another being, a human, I believe that that anger needs to get released first. Then the ho'opono and the cord cutting is 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 genuine. Yeah. If it's done prematurely, it becomes a band-aid and people no longer give themselves permission if they start to feel angry, which is going to not work well. Okay. That's what throws people into depression. What do you think about then? Like, um, cause I definitely, I mean, I, I think that that makes total sense. Um, but in regards to like, uh, 
kind of a sort of 5D mindset, if you will, if like someone does upset you very much, not that, you know, a, a middle space in between just irritating you and, and abusing you, but, uh-huh. you know, maybe someone says something about you that's really awful that infuriates you, um, but you just want to choose, you know, because you know that like that negative anger that negative energy is going to hurt you more than anything else. So you kind of make that choice from yourself versus, you know, going through it. What, what do you think on that? Well, what hurts us is not the anger. What hurts us is what we're doing with the anger. If we keep feeling resentful and running it over and over, if we judge it, that's what does harm. The energy in and of itself is not harmful it's, it's a natural response. If, if you look at an infant who is hungry and wants to get fed and mom or dad is, you know, a few minutes late, that infant's going to be pissed off. <laughs> right. Okay? It's just natural. It's not good or bad. Now, in a healthy situation, that infant will scream, get fed, be fine. Nothing builds up. But in a culture that doesn't teach us how to deal with anger in a healthy way, where either we harm ourselves or we harm somebody else, it builds up. So if um, somebody is really, you know, doing something that feels like a violation to us, part of the issue is it may bring up other violations and the energy needs to get released before we can go into that full forgiveness. But again, if we keep running it, oh, I can't stand that person, blah, blah, blah. That's what's harmful. Okay. If we can say, okay, they didn't have a right to treat me like that. And I'm really pissed off and I'm going to, you know, pound them for a minute on pillows after asking this not do any harm. Okay. Cause we don't, want to do any harm with that anger and we can feel that release (sighs) now I can forgive them yeah but I really believe that that energy needs to be honored and and it bothers me some that there's this collective belief now that anger um, can hurt you because it's not separated out from what parts of dealing with anger are harmful to you versus what what's only fair to honor and acknowledge so that it can move through and not do harm. Yeah. There's actually, and an I've, um, my family, half my family, I should say, there's a lot of anger in that family line. We're pretty intense. <laughs> um, so my father had gotten me the Nathan Hunt, not Oh, Thich Nhat Hanh? Yes, thank you for saying his name correctly. Because um, I know like he wrote a book on anger um, that I have actually on my reading list to get to finally. But uh, there's there's this, this wave that, that's starting to come out right now. I'm starting to see it more and more about the, the importance of anger. Um, and, and actually, someone, I just was reading a quick thing. I think I think there's a book called The Dignity of Anger um, oh. that I was going to look into. But, um, but there's starting, so much more of that is starting to come out now. And I think that that's just really healthy for a lot of people. Yes. It's really healthy. Because, again, there's nothing wrong with the feeling. The reason we're so anger skittish is that it has been so misused. 
Yeah. It's not okay to harm somebody else because you're angry. Yeah. It's not okay to harm yourself. Right. Right. Well, and then especially because, you know, we're women and like women aren't supposed to get angry. So then there's that extra layer. (laughs) Yes. Where for men, it's like the opposite. They're not supposed to feel sad or scared. Yeah. So a lot of men end up putting uh, all, whatever they feel, something uncomfortable, it gets put into anger. And it's, that's a little more complex, but as they learn to, to give themselves more permission, to feel sad and cry or to be scared because they're human, then, then they can work differently with the anger. All right, Miss Judith. So (laughs) before we kind of jump into the lightning round, I wanted to, uh, I I know that you have workshops coming up, um, but I'd love to know what you have coming up for the rest of the year. If you could share that with us. Okay. Well, the the definite I have coming up is that uh, my dear friend and colleague Carly Mattermore and I are offering our Shamanic Multidimensional Mystery School online. It's going to be on Zoom. And the first segment, it's a four-segment experience. The first segment is uh, November 5th to November 8th. Um, It is, the, the subtitle of the workshop is Becoming a 5D Human on Planet Earth. And we've run this school um, two full circles, which means eight times. And it is, it's phenomenal. Carly and I go, wow. And all of our students go, wow. It's, it's just been an amazing experience. And we really want to be able to expand it, which is why we're offering it on zoom. Um, At one point we imagined we'd just be traveling and offering it in different locations, but when COVID hit, it suddenly dawned on us, wait a minute, this might be much easier for people. Um, It's different, you know, while there's less in per, you know, we don't have a certain piece of in-person, if it's done right on Zoom, you really feel the connections. I will say that um, we have put um, of, of the circles that we did, we're offering just for our graduates a advanced mystery school and 85% signed up. They were still hungry for this. So I'm really excited about that. I haven't updated it on my website yet, which I'll do probably in the next few days because registration opens officially on Saturday. Okay. Um, but it is, it, it, we love teaching it. Carly and I were friends before we were colleagues and found, I mean, we're great co-teachers. We, we bring in a balance. She's, um, uh, was called to Africa in for the white lions and she's been called for the whales. She's very much tuned into the earth piece of this as well as the higher dimensions. So she brings the shamanic piece, um, and together we just we have fun and it just really works but we've just seen amazing uh, pieces with this and um it is focused on the nine dimensional axis and i found out that actually plato used to teach a mystery school similar to that that had come from atlantis so this is uh, a very old tradition even though we're putting our own pieces on it so that's my most exciting and definite piece that's happening. I've also committed to running a, um, a class, a Zoom class on my book. 
but it's not yet come. It's, I, I'm still kind of stuck with how many classes to offer, when to start it, but that will be coming. So that will, will start before the end of the year as well. Awesome. You also kind of mentioned, um, uh, was it was it judgment? That you might well, I, I do a bunch of, of short classes. I'm not going to do those again for a while. I feel um, like those I could be great. Have, actually, I have an online <laughs> that's already been created okay. um, for my book, Empowering the Spirit. And that's mm. already available. That's not an interactive class other than through email. It's not like a Zoom class. It's uh, pre-recorded where you actually read and listen to the recordings. Um, there's a lot of meditations involved, and it follows the book chapter by chapter uh, through the first six chapters. So, um, you know, but that and that's ongoing, available. But the judgment piece, um, anytime I teach 5D or even do, I've been doing book events with 5D. I haven't been able to go to the bookstores in person, so I've been doing them on Zoom. I, I have one set up in. Um, um, Denver area, the end of October, I'm hoping will be in person, but if not, that will also be in on zoom. I can't teach 5d generally without touching on judgment. However, in an hour and an hour and a half, you're not going to get the depth of it versus something that just focuses on it. So, yeah. you know, that will come back. I don't know when. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I have a lot to mosey until, until the <laughs> Okay, now. <laughs> <laughs> the divine timing steps in. Um, all right, so let's jump in to the lightning round. You ready? Okay. Yeah. Dum, 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 dum. Okay. Question number one What is the one habit that you can't live without? Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, I left out my every other day yoga. <laughs> what is the, probably my journal writing. Like but I have that. a lot healthy food. I could go on and on. Not a problem. But yoga, uh, journal writing is like the number one. I, it's a, probably. Awesome. Okay. Number two, what does spirituality mean for you? Ah. Uh, it means really being true to my heart's wisdom. I love that. That's really beautiful. That's a quotable. <laughs> <laughs> what is your advice to anyone who's looking for their purpose? Uh, be open. Uh, be willing to be surprised. Um, it may be big and it may be small and it's all equal. I love that. Okay. And then where can people connect with you online? Oh, that's an easy one. <laughs> <laughs> My website is empoweringthespirit.com and, uh, my, uh, Facebook page is Empowering the Spirit to Awaken Your 5D Potential. I think it's potential. <laughs> Might be frequency. Not a problem. And then you you have a Instagram as well, right? I do. Um, that's just my name, Judith Corbin Blackburn. I'm thinking there's not a hyphen in there. I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. 
And we'll, we'll be sure to link all of that in the show notes for folks so they can find it easily. It's on your website though too, right? My Instagram is not, I don't, because I just am not that text. (laughs) I guess I should have it on there. (laughs) Well, and I I definitely, um, Judith puts that, make sure you sign up for her email list because she sends out a wonderful newsletter. How do you do that? Like once a month or something, or maybe Um, a little bit more frequently? I don't do it more frequently than once a month. Lately, I have been doing it once a month, pretty much since the book released. And I think I'm going to, you know, kind of stay in that rhythm. Um, Prior to that, might have been two or three times a year, sometimes four or five times, depending on uh, what was coming up. And um, then, of course, I email people about offerings. So those would be the two things that people get. Okay, yeah. Well, I love your emails. They're always uplifting. Um, So definitely want folks to make sure they know about that. Thank you. Yes. And if they go to the website, there's a pop-up. Okay. And um, there's also a way to contact me. I'm very good about emailing people. So it's always nice to hear from people. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Miss Judith. Well, it has been such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for coming to be a guest. Oh, it's been great for me, Anna. I know we've talked about this for a while, so almost like having you on my porch I know right (laughs) except the wine missing the wine and good food (laughs) all right folks that wraps up today's episode and now I'm curious what did you learn today head over to our website via the link in our show notes and leave your comments on today's post or find us on social media at soul driven podcast I'd love to hear from you If you were inspired by today's message, please share this episode and leave a review on iTunes. Sign up for the email list to receive podcast updates and free tools and resources only shared with that community. And don't forget, when we invest in ourselves, the world benefits. Until next week.